You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. It is good to see you all here, and um, the, I think the days are getting better. The days are getting better, and so praise God for that. It is pretty much May, and it snowed like three weeks ago, right? This is crazy. Now, I'll be kind of dating myself uh, right now, but there was a time when the internet meant nothing to me. Yeah. In fact, I, I just got back from Virginia Tech speaking at CCF, a uh, campus ministry there, uh, with our college director, Jesse, and as we were driving up, he was, we were talking about... Uh, the differences between generation like X, the uh, millennials, and exennials, right, which apparently is a category that I fall into. The exennial is the in-between generation where we actually lived when phones began to kind of appear and started getting popular and where the internet started to kind of appear. See, back in high school, uh, we didn't have Google. Google did not exist. Instead, we had to ask Jeeves. You guys know what I'm talking about? And Jeeves is horrible, right? He was horrible. Um, so instead of really relying on the internet and, and waiting for the dial-up to work and connect and the beep, beep sound, all that stuff, we would actually rely on something called books, right? And these books in particular were called encyclopedias. I know that's where we get Wikipedia from, right? Encyclopedias. And um, I remember for a science class one day, uh, my, my group and I, we had to go and look up the human muscular system. And so the cool thing about this one particular encyclopedia set that our school had, the school library had, was that if you go to the page with the human body, there they had transparent pages where you can kind of put over, and there you would see the circulatory system and the nervous system, and then the muscular system was really cool. And so you see this layer by layer that eventually created this whole this whole body, this whole image, and it was pretty cool. So like that layer-by-layer layer image, it reminds me of our text today because here we have this, I think, awesome, miraculous event, but it has several layers to it that will make up the whole picture, the whole miracle. And so let's take a look at it one slice at a time. Now the thing is, this passage, it records a real miracle. Do you all believe in miracles? Right? Yes. Uh, there were many large pots that Jesus commanded all the servants to fill up to the brim with water. And there was just a huge amount of wine created. And there was also this independent testimony of the master of the banquet or the feast. He was like maybe, maybe the best man or maybe he was just kind of the one in charge of the ceremony. And he tasted it and he's like, this is the best wine ever. So Jesus here turned water into fine wine. And it wasn't like there was wine residue and someone took a sip and something, there was like a flavor of wine. Uh-uh. This was 150 gallons of the best fine wine. So this was not only a spectacular uh, miracle, but it was a creative one too. It was awesome. But what's the significance of this all then? I have three points. My first is this. Jesus blesses life with joy. Jesus blesses life with joy. All right, now, in Romans chapter 14, there's a verse that says this. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy 
in the Holy Spirit. I think when it comes to churches, and maybe even churches like ours, I think that we got the part about righteousness right. I do. I, I think we all know uh, what living in right standing, living in godliness, and living in holiness, like, I think we get that. I think we know that's crucial, that it is important, that it is an imperative. And so we strive, and we try to work our kind of sanctification. We try to grow in our holiness. And so I think we get that. In fact, I also even think that we, we, we have an understanding of what it means to live in peace and to also be givers of peace and be filled with peace. But when I look at Christians, when I look at churches, and I'll be honest, even when I sometimes look into my own life, I feel that many of us are lacking joy. And if you believe and agree with what I'm saying about your life, say amen. We are sometimes lacking joy. It's like we got the doctrines and the teachings right. We got security in terms of what salvation means right. And yeah, maybe even during worship, right, we jump up and down, we clap our hands, we sway left and right. And then, but when worship ends, I sense that that supernatural joy and that excitement and that joy that really kind of marks the presence of God in our lives is often missing. But this miracle shows Jesus blessing life with joy. So I want you all to think about this miracle for a second, which happened to be the very first miracle of Christ. So get this, it is at a wedding party. In fact, uh, just yesterday, uh, someone who attends our church, Chris Chin Loy, just got married yesterday. So if you see him, make sure you congratulate him and his wife. Uh, Joe and Joanna just got back from a, wedding, from a friend's wedding as well. So we know weddings are important. They're important. They're huge. They are important events even in our culture, and they were certainly events, important events back in the biblical times too. And back then, sometimes, the, those wedding events would last an entire week. So I'll be honest. As a pastor, and I know some Christians here, we will attend a wedding ceremony, but we'll skip the partay. Right? Do you get what I'm saying? Especially if there's drinking involved. In fact, I know a lot of people who wouldn't even think of inviting a Christian, especially a pastor, to a party. And it's not done, by the way, out of contempt or out of whatever, but the host just would feel that the pastor or this kind of uber-Christian would feel out of place in that type of scene. And by the way, I'm not saying this because I'm asking you all to start inviting me to your, uh, to your wedding parties. Like, I'm not crying home or anything like that, at least in front of my wife, I'm not. But the thing is, the thing about Jesus was that he was not out of place. Whenever he was in those uh, events or the ceremonies and the celebrations and those party situations, like he was not out of place. And it's amazing to see as you read the Gospels that Jesus perfectly welcome and, and is at home in the company of people who are having a good time. Like, he's chill there. He's feasting, and he's sitting, and he is talking and socializing with people who the whole culture and society would consider sinners. But get this, Jesus was not a buzzkill. He was not a buzzkill. He was not a killjoy. He was not a Debbie Downer. It was, in fact, the religious leaders who were the pretentious and judgmental and legalistic ones who never got the invite. On the other hand, it was Jesus 
who was often happily invited to rejoice and celebrate with people. And so here in this little village of Cana, in the home of presumably some common people, which is why we think that they were maybe a little bit poor, so poor enough that they cut it a little bit too close in terms of their provision of wine for the wedding party. And so here Jesus, who is the Word of God, who is the Son of God, who is the Messiah, here he comes bringing joy. And why does Jesus perform such a miracle in this home? It seems simple enough, I think. And that is, it was simply to save a young groom or bridegroom from being humiliated. Now, one of the biggest nightmares for any wedding is when the food runs out, right? That's why I loved it when uh, actually at at Tom and Christine's wedding, (laughs) they're right there, um, we were at their house for the reception and they had this amazing Italian spread and I was making my round when the chicken piccata was all out. At first, I was going to make a scene and say, is this how you treat your guests? But before I could, their wonderful daughter, Lindsay, she swoops in, she grabs a brand new train of chicken piccata and all was well in my world. (laughs) Not having enough food, or in this case, not having enough wine was a big faux pas. Jesus, in an act of mercy, perhaps, in an act of kindness to keep embarrassment from ruining a very, very special occasion, from ruining a very, very special day, he performs a miracle. Okay, so let's get into it. Some of you, all right, I'm going to say this very carefully. I thought about this very prayerfully, but hear me out. Some of you might be bothered that there was drinking there, that Jesus is associated with it. And you're definitely maybe even not liking my tone and the fact that I'm not condemning it enough. I've heard someone say that this wasn't real wine, that Jesus made grape juice, that he was the first producer of Welch's. (laughs) Really, people say that. Not the Welch's part, but that was grape juice. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus turned water into wine, real alcoholic wine. No grape juice here. In fact, it is consistent with God's word elsewhere. The word for wine here in this passage is the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.18 when it tells us and warns us of do not get drunk with wine. It's referring to an alcoholic wine. So the same word. Psalm 104 praises God for making wine that gladdens the heart of man. So, does that make drinking all right? The answer is yes, And no. The Bible never condemns drinking outright. The Bible never says that holiness demands abstinence. But the Bible repeatedly warns against and condemns every single occurrence of drunkenness found in the Bible. You hear me? Folks, hear me out. Alcoholism is ungodly. Alcoholism, drunkenness, is sinful. Yes, Jesus did associate with drunkards and with thieves and with prostitutes, but you will never, ever find anywhere in Scripture where he ever approved of their behavior. He never said, well, this is your choice. This is your life. Do what you want. You have the right to live the way that you want. Oh, not then and not now. Here's the problem, though. The problem is that 
it is in Jesus' name that we have gone so far into the other direction that we are often against people simply having a good time. Look, some Christians go around with grim faces. I'm seeing about 120 right now. They go around with grim faces if they ever find themselves surrounded by anyone who might be having a good time. And by the way, I'm not saying that person is drunk, but simply having a good time. That this Christian with the grim face is suspicious of their fun. Is suspicious of their happiness. That it is something to do with something maybe illegal or immoral or unbiblical. So they look down upon that individual who is having maybe a joyful time. Jesus never condemned those who were enjoying themselves, and he certainly was not jealous of them either. People think that Jesus, from this passage, was promoting drunkenness. Drunkenness at the wedding for making all that wine. He made almost half a ton of wine. Does that mean Jesus was promoting? No. Because I can say this. Does it mean that Jesus was promoting gluttony? for feeding the 5,000 with, with the bread and loaves and, and fish that had 12 baskets of food left over? Does that mean that Jesus was promoting sexual immorality when God created sex? Alcohol, food, and sex are not bad. They are, in fact, good things. Ecclesiastes 9 says, Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Alcohol Food and sex are not bad. Get this, we have made them bad. You hear me? We have made them bad. We have distorted and we have idolized and we have overly indulged in these good things outside of its original context and outside of the confines of God's law. We have made what God had made good into something bad. You know, my regret is that growing up, I've created a very kind of stuffy view of Jesus, I think. And I think that in many ways, in many ways, he would be unwelcome in, our, in many church circles, but, but perfectly feel at home with people who we would have otherwise never invited. Now, this is not an encouragement for you all to start drinking. In fact, because I have been here since the beginning, almost 17 years, well, all 17 years really, and I have walked and I have talked with many, if not all of you, I know that there are some brothers and sisters, but in particular, brothers here who are struggling with alcohol consumption and addiction. Now, some of us here, we may not be full-blown addicts, but hear me out. The way that you are going in your drinking and your involvement of alcohol is going way past a controlled and sober and spirit-filled occasional celebration and into a uh, state of isolation, a state of bitterness, a state of belligerence through drunkenness. You hear me? Like that line has so far passed. It is not acceptable in any context for anyone to get drunk with wine. I don't care if you are on vacation and you're on a booze cruise. I don't care if you're at a class reunion. I don't care if you're even at your own wedding or even in the privacy of your own home. Drunkenness is a sin and it will, whether you know it or not, today or tomorrow, the week after, it will damage your walk with Christ. So let's be real here. If you drink to get drunk, Stop. Not me. 
The Bible says you must stop. And don't you dare say, well, I've got Christian liberty. If you have family or friends who are struggling with alcohol, then brothers and sisters, I want, I want to implore you to say this. You must let your conscience and also your circumstance dictate your personal freedom to partake in this. Meaning this, maybe it might be better for you to abstain from alcohol if your consuming of alcohol could possibly lead someone to stumble. Does that make sense? In this particular event of the wedding, Jesus, he brought joy through wine. It was a celebration. So folks, we must not condemn one another. If you feel like you are called to abstain from alcohol, then do so. But leave that judgmental attitude. That's got to go. Do not enforce your personal conviction on others. You guys hear me? But I want to pry a little bit more. If your separation from non-believing friends due to maybe their lifestyle or partying or getting drunk or whatever, if that leads you to look down on them, it leads you to judge them and with the attitude of I'm holier than thou, get this, first of all, you never made yourself holy. God made you holy. He is the one who saved you from your sin, from your wretchedness, from your wickedness. You were a mess. What we need to do, folks, is that we need to do a better job at socializing with those beyond the singular objective of simply wanting to convert them. Let's, here's an experiment. Rather, here's a challenge for us as Shining Star EM. Let's try to make friends for the sake of loving them. Y'all feel me? Let's try to make friends who are not in our typical Christian circles for the purposes of just simply loving them rather than seeing them as simply a gospel pet project. Again, this does not mean that in order for you to socialize with them that you have to now participate in drinking and getting drunk with them, nor does this mean that you should completely abandon your gospel life, but I've seen some of your faces and there's no joy there. There's no joy. Wake up. You are free in Christ Jesus. You are saved. If you were to die today and you are a follower of Christ, praise be to God because you will be in the sweet embrace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What have you got to worry about? Be happy. Be joyful. Because if someone were to see your face and you're all grim and you think you're being spiritual but it just means that you're being grim, why on earth would they want to have what you clearly have? <laughs> yeah, someone said that's true. Thank you for that response. It's true. We need to get rid of our black clothes, our, our hushed tones. It's a metaphor, people, not literally. Our lack of humor, our lack of laughter, our lack of zest for life. All that needs to be thrown out. Let's be excited. And I know it may seem like you're trying to manufacture something that's not there. Then you know what? Surrender it before the Lord and say, God, I am somehow just torn and miserable and just angry and I feel defiled or something. God made you into a new creation. You were never meant to live as the old creation. Surrender it to the Lord. And say, God, check my heart. Talk to friends. Help them evaluate where you are emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, whatever it is. The Bible tells us the fruit of the Spirit is joy. 
and the ultimate joy is found in Christ. So let's live in celebration of our new creation and also in his desire for others to come to know him. And if that involves a little wine, then raise your cup. Then raise your cup to the groom. For you are his bride, so let's celebrate. Amen? Secondly, I bet you all like that first point. (laughs) Secondly, Jesus pursues his plans without compromise. Jesus pursues his plans without compromise. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Jesus pursues his plans without compromise. All right. We got a real dislike for politicians. Someone said all politicians should dress up like NASCAR cars to see who's sponsoring them. <clears throat> I didn't say it. Compromise is their agenda, but Jesus is not like that. Jesus has a plan. And he does not compromise. I'm going to say hallelujah to that. He's steady. In verse 3, 5, it reads this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Even though Jesus had never done a miracle, Mary knew who Jesus was. She heard the angel's announcement. She knew she was a virgin when she was conceived, when he was conceived. And she had undoubtedly seen the character of his life really agreeing with his identity as the Messiah. So she was without doubt probably used to depending on him. Jesus at this time was about 30 years old. And as the story goes, the wine runs out. We're not entirely sure, but from the text, it seems that as if Mary, Mama Mary, had something to do with the wedding. Maybe she was close to the master of the feast, the host or whomever, because if she were a guest, and most likely she would never have never heard of this faux pas, this issue that occurred. Anyway, so she decides to ask Jesus to do something about it. By the way, I was just thinking, I wonder how often Mary would use Jesus for everyday things. Haven't you? Hey, Jesus, we're running low on bread. Can you multiply So we don't know what happened inside their home. We're not exactly sure what Mary had in mind when she asked her son, Jesus, about the wine situation. But as a mother, I think uh, that she certainly had the right, maybe, to ask for some special consideration from her special son because he is the creator of the universe. Can you help us out, son? I know these people. Hook me up. But like point two mentions, Jesus had his own plan which is why Jesus addressed his mother the way he did. He calls her woman. Now, I know in our current context, we think that's highly inappropriate. It is not. It was actually a, a, a title of respect, but, not, but, uh, but lacked intimacy. It was like as if in the South we say, yes, ma'am. That's it, okay? <clears throat> and so Jesus challenges her request. Woman What does, or ma'am, what does this have to do with me? The literal translation is, what to me and what to you? It's not a rude tone, like the way that we're kind of hearing it. But it certainly is abrupt. It's in this phrase that Jesus makes it very clear that Mary does not, even though she is his earthly mother, but Mary does not have some special status to appeal to him just because she's mom. 
And so Jesus knew that Mary approached him with that kind of motive, that kind of incentive, that kind of notion. And so gently Jesus kind of shares his rebuttal that he needs to, Mom, pursue my agenda in my own way. And maybe this was hard for Mary to hear because it seems right here that there was a shift in their relationship. But how does she, how does she respond? She humbly accepts it. She humbly accepts it and she submits to it. Because she was someone who came at first to Jesus as his mother, seeking a favor, but then she leaves as his disciple, trusting him. You guys hear me? She left as a disciple, submitting to his agenda and advising the servants to listen and obey him. She had come to him as a mother, kind of manipulative, but then she leaves as the daughter, trusting in her Lord. I think that's pretty incredible. Folks, when you encounter Christ through his word, you leave changed. You leave changed. You are never the same again. Look, the way that we live our lives and pray our prayers are often, I think, subtle and manipulative ways to kind of divert Jesus from his agenda to start working on ours. We start saying, Jesus, wake up. I need help. Like the world revolves around me right now. This is what's going on. I'm not saying that what we're doing and when we pray that prayer is anything demonic or wicked necessarily, but let's be real. How often have we come to the Lord with our plans and our agenda and our goals and our expectations asking him to bless it with success, never mind thinking for once if what we are asking for is actually in compliance with his will. If God will be glorified, how have we, have we ever asked and took the time when we sought after the Lord to see if what we wanted to do and what we want to accomplish would actually glorify God, would actually edify the church, and would actually bless those around us? But no, our prayers are often about me, myself, and I. God, work your work for my glory, for my benefit. Maybe like Mary, our relationship with Jesus is like playing, let's make a deal. God, if you do this, then I will follow you. If you give me what I want, bless me with a better job, maybe change my husband or change my wife or give me children or fix my immigration status or change my miserable situation right now. Then, God, I will climb the highest of mountains for you. I will read the entire Bible front and back and memorize scripture every single day. I will tithe and I will serve and I will just build up the church and I will be the greatest servant you've ever seen only if you do this for me. Stop with that. Jesus would rebuke us just like he rebuked his own mother. He calls you to be his disciple. Period. Disciple, which means that we are subject to his agenda. We must surrender ourselves to his plans. We must relinquish all concerns and all commitments to his will. Because, folks, if you're calling Christ Lord, then let him be Lord. Don't tell him what is best for your life. Don't tell God what he must do for you and how he must solve your problems, when he must act, and what kind of miracle he needs to perform in your life. Who's God? You or him? We are called to trust and obey. Amen? Now, you might come as a manipulator. 
I certainly have. I've definitely had those prayers. But know that we must always leave as his, as his disciple. Jesus pursues his plans without compromising, and his plans are good. His plans are right. His plans are full of grace. And listen here. No one who follows him has ever once regretted it. Yeah? Jesus never disappoints those who humbly trust in him. Amen. Lastly, Jesus purifies us by the wine of his blood. He purifies us by the wine of his blood. You know that saying, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I think, I think that was Apostle John's experience too when he experienced a miracle at the wedding uh, feast in Cana. As he watched what Jesus did, I'm sure he felt joy. When he heard the exchange between Jesus and Mary, I'm sure he sensed a shift in their relationship. And we know that from verse 11, that as the water turned into wine, the disciples here says they placed their faith in Jesus, Jesus in a way that they had never believed before. In verse 11, it's clear that John saw this miracle as a sign. A sign for what, though? Here's a quick breakdown of what John's been pointing out the entire time. Clues, if you will. In verse 4, Jesus says, My time or hour has not yet come. What does that mean? What hour? What time? In verse 6, it says, uh, The pots were used, and these pots were nor normally ceremonial for ceremonial cleaning. Why is that important? This also was a wedding feast. Is that significant? And lastly, in verse 11, his glory is revealed. What does that clue mean? In terms of time or hour, Jesus talks about his time a lot throughout the gospel. In chapter 7, 8, 12, 13, and 17, he says, he says his hour, his time had not yet come, and he was always referring to his death. Jesus was preparing for his death. And the pots that were used for ceremonial cleaning, this was a tradition of purification to wash away the filth. But in ceremony, it always fell short because it can never really do more than simply disinfecting your hands or disinfecting your feet. Jesus uses this to show us that he will do something that this, this ceremonial cleansing cannot do. He will not only cleanse us from the dirt and the grit and all that junk, but he will what? Wash away the dirt and the sins of mankind. The book of Revelation points to the coming glory as the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a celebration of the Lord, the bridegroom who receives his bride, a.k.a. the church. And finally, Jesus talks about his glory. Remember in chapter 1, we read the verse, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So what was glorious? It was his grace. The gloriousness of his grace that surpassed the law. Folks, if your takeaway from this 35 minutes of sermon <clears throat> is that you feel justified to indulge in alcohol and flaunt your newfound Christian liberty to drink, then you have missed the point. Yes, as believers, we need to live a life of joy. We need to learn how to properly celebrate and not look down on others who, if they partake in wine, fine, so be it. But there is a greater point than our liberty to drink, and that is the agenda of Christ. He came to his will to do more than just party with sinners. we got to stop using that excuse for us to party. He came here not to party with sinners, but to save sinners. 
We might be inclined to force Jesus into our personal agenda of fix this and do that, but we've got it backwards. Jesus, he will not compromise, so we must be the ones that bends. We must be the ones to surrender ourselves to him. And finally, do you see why the first miracle of Christ was the first miracle of Christ? Again, it wasn't to show how great wine is or how changed Mary was. The first miracle points us to the cross. To the cross that it was Jesus who purifies us from sins from the wine of his blood that was shed on the cross. The first miracle of Christ is the whole story of redemption. It's not just about go ahead and drink now. It's the story of redemption. May we now worship him in humility. And may we, I pray and I challenge you all, let's begin to live our lives in celebration as the redeemed. Amen? And invite me to your parties. <laughs> let's pray. You are a faithful father. There is no doubt about that. You are a loving God. You are kind, and your kindness leads us to repentance. We thank you, Lord, for your generous grace that so many of our brothers and sisters here who can say and profess with their hearts and in their mouths and their lives say that you are the Lord and Savior. We thank you for your favor upon us all. And maybe, yeah, we do know quite a few things about the Bible and what it means to be a Christian. Maybe it has to do with culture. I don't know. But Lord, forgive us for living a life that is free of joy. Forgive us for living a life that is so just content on having a sorrowful face almost miserable. That is not how we are called to live. But to live with joy. Live knowing that we are blessed. Live knowing that even if today's our last day, that all is well. How can someone with that kind of assurance knowing that we have a God who covers everything in our lives. How could we walk around with such grim faces? I pray that this whole church here, this EM ministry, would encourage one another, that we would build each other up, that we would take the step and actually learn about each other and hang out with each other and, and celebrate with each other in whatever capacity, whatever that means. I also pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for any type of pretension. If you ever look down on others, whether they celebrated or partied or whatever, whether we felt like they weren't as Christian as we were. But that you would give us a forgiving heart, a compassionate soul, a merciful hand to love them. So after all this, folks, let's take a moment, just pray. The first miracle is not about wine. 
it was about redemption. It was about his blood. It was about the purification that we were able to have received because of the death and sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in our prayer, let's lift him up. Let's worship him. Okay? Let's pray.